Welcome to season two of The Reflection. We started this series in March 2020 after the announcement of the lockdown and COVID-19 began to change the world. For 20 weeks, academics, activists and journalists joined us to discuss everything from the UK government's mishandling of the pandemic, the growth of conspiracies, Black Lives Matter and what it was like to bear witness to the growth of existing local and global inequalities. For this season, our guests will be reflecting on the political climate of the past year and we'll be talking to authors who have released books in 2020 concerning matters of race and class. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society's Reflection Series. We're actually coming to the end of this series now. We've only got a couple more yeah. um, episodes left. I've been enjoying doing the kind of live, well, like-ish, live-ish commentary of politics and the news. I think it's, it's been good, like, getting guests back and getting to reflect on how crazy things have been. Definitely. And speaking of which, we have the amazing Professor Danny Dorlin in the studio, who <laughs> is a social geographer, <laughs> resident government receipts bringer to Surviving Society podcast and in the Hall of Fame of Surviving Society alumni, I would there's say. Pictures, there's a picture. There's, there's a picture. <laughs> like Danny, Danny gets, gets, a, gets a picture yeah, in the cool. Surviving Society Hall of Fame. Hi, Danny. Thank you for coming on the show again. Hi, thanks for having me again. So we were just saying in the pre-chat that Danny's one of the people that comes on the show where we lit, we hardly we well we don't do that much preparation anyway but like <laughs> no we prepare like, a lot we prepare, we, we prepare but we try lot. and make the conversations <laughs> as organic as possible yeah. like we have like kind of leading questions mm. in a way but with Danny like we do so few because the conversation is always just straight into it mm. so T you had a comp- you had a question that you've been thinking about this morning for Danny <laughs> Danny I was thinking so has the pandemic and especially with the kind of thing in, in Afghanistan is that does that signify not just the end of is this the end of America or end of Western hegemony? That's what I was thinking. <laughs> That's a, That's a big one. A big one. Where it's did big that one. come from? Yeah. It's not even like well, Danny. I think you are a specialist on all things current affairs no, and but, politics, but, but it's like a rogue one. Yeah, but I'm kind of like I'm linking to kind of like how out of Brexit, how Britain is, and how like especially with America, with the kind of partnership between America and Australia mm. and uh, against China. Yeah. It seems to me like there's a panic in the West. And so I just think had the pandemic and all the kind of bits that kind of preceded or come after that. Is this the end? The war on terror, Brexit, all those COVID-19. All is those this things. the end is this the of end? the West? Okay, um, I'll go at, go at this. I think COVID-19 is probably the least important in these things or, or will be seen to in the future. Although, you know, right now it's on the top of our heads because we just lived through it. Mm-hmm. The US has been declining for decades. Mm-hmm. So it, in a sense... I think you could be confident to say it's on that slope. It's heading downwards. Living standards for many people in America haven't improved for 30 years. It has lots and lots of weapons. It has 10 fleets. <laughs> They're not all physical. Some of them are cyber fleets, but it has these 10 fleets that go around the world. And of course, it has more nuclear missiles than anybody else still. But the US was at its height. Well, it overtook us for, for GDP per person just over 100 years ago. And was in its height in the 1950s and 1960s. At the time, in 1957, when we failed with Suez and an American politician said Britain has lost an empire and not yet found a role, that was kind of America really rubbing our noses in it. And we're not yet at the point for America where they've had their equivalent to the Suez crisis. They chose to come out of Afghanistan. They weren't actually forced out of Afghanistan, but they're definitely on the slow route down. And like all empires... Uh, they can't uh, accept that. You don't accept that. The British, I'd argue, still haven't quite accepted uh, that fall. 
So, so that's the way we're heading. But Afghanistan is not the equivalent of Suez. It isn't as embarrassing. It's interesting that they they spent so long there. In a way, in you know, in hindsight, you sort of think, why twenty years? Why not fifteen? Why not ten? Uh, I haven't got an answer to that. Mm-hmm. But I'm not surprised that they have. Uh, pulled out. I am surprised that the British were so surprised <laughs> that they did. Do we really not understand what we say is our closest ally that well? And possibly we don't. Possibly we're living in a strange kind of fantasy world where we don't even understand the Americans that well. And then, yes, this week uh, they announced that little pact Australia, UK, <laughs> USA. Is what is that? Of... Whites Unite? What is that? <laughs> what, what, what is it? What, what's, what, what I found quite telling is that, that the alliance is kind of like a, a white nationalist dream but mm. at the exclusion of Europe it's odd I mean it's just you know all the alliance actually is so far is a deal about nuclear powered submarines yeah. and so just to be clear for the listeners who's in this Danny and what's it called um but well, the acronym is AUKUS <laughs> yeah. Arcus um it, it's almost just like a kind of press release you know whether it ends up being a bigger thing, we'll see. There was a thing called, was it Five Eyes before, which had yeah. the USA, Australia, and New Zealand, and, and so on and us. So there's always been this ang- Anglio kind of white little pact. We sh- only shared our intelligence um, with this group, not with the rest of NATO, not with Europe. Uh, so it's a kind of like dog end of the British Empire and the American Empire mm. uh, thing. Who's in it? UK... So Australia it, and and US. Um, oh well, I get I'll get it wrong. I've, I've got a feeling it might have been Singapore. Oh. Um, you know, so not entirely white, wow. um, but okay. certainly yeah. certainly the most economically unequal countries yeah. all put together because the mainland European countries are more equitable and have, in many ways, a different idea about where they're going. But it spells an acceleration in the end of NATO. Yeah, you know, it's a real division in NATO. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, NATO had become this kind of quite bullying force. So things are changing. China is quietly ascending in all kinds of ways. I saw it most recently on, if you just look at your test kits for COVID, um, they say made in China. You know, <laughs> it, it, you, know that's a, you could do an embargo in China if you wanted, but you couldn't control the disease if you did. Mm. Um, China's just remarkably patient so far, incredibly patient, uh, takes endless kind of insults from the West and doesn't take them to heart. And I think the Chinese think that these things are being aimed at a domestic Western audience to help Western politicians kind of hold themselves up to their own electorate. And it isn't really that much um, about China. It's it's a kind of look at us, look at we're strong. We've got an aircraft carrier, we'll send it to the South China Sea. Um, you mentioned, um, Danny, talking then about some of the most um, unequal countries united. And obviously this is where we like bringing you on the show to tell our listeners, particularly about local inequalities in the UK. Is there anything in particular you think people should know about the last 18 months about the widening of inequalities during COVID-19 in particular? Because obviously yeah. bef- just before you came on the show... Well, you've been on the show a number of times now, but you obviously published Slow Down mm. in 2020, talking about the slow, slowing down of the economy. But also, when you came on, I think in 2019, we were talking about how concerned we were at 
the growth of inequalities and just how bad things were getting in terms of the like the squeeze and the austerity how many people just don't have access to cash and it just feels like like we've said on the show so many times the pandemic just hit the worst time ever in terms of uk Mm. inequality yeah well i published a book with the title was peak inequality in 2018 and i'm I'm always optimistic i was being optimistic and hoping that 2018 might have been the peak inequality rose to that peak really in the late 1990s so we've been at peak inequality for a very long time uh the take of the one percent carried on after the 1990s going up and up and then appeared to kind of hover around 2018 2019 the pandemic and it's been measured uh, by what's called the British Household Panel Study, the pandemic has increased inequalities. Uh, even though there was a £20 a week uplift in universal credit, that was cancelled out by the fall in earnings of people who couldn't work, who were the poorest, uh, because of the pandemic. So we, ha- we have had what is hopefully a temporary rise above what we thought, or what I thought at least, uh, was the peak. And I thought it was the peak because it was the highest level in Europe give or take Bulgaria occasionally. You can be very nerdy about this. But when you have the highest level of something, it's very hard to sustain that. But it has got worse. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, it it has got worse. Uh And, you know, you've got to remember furlough, people were on 80% of what they were normally on. Now, you didn't have to go in and work, but if you were only just surviving on what you were normally on, getting by on 20 pounds less a week, say, if you're getting 100, uh, and that's a that's a 20% fall, is very tricky. That analysis of the British Household Panel Study showed that what people were doing to get through the pandemic was going into even more debt, but there's a limit to how much debt you can go in, and borrowing off family and friends more than they ever had done before. But of course, there's a limit to that. So we've reached a point, a kind of cracking point. This week, we're looking at that £20 a week universal credit being rolled back, that's by far the biggest effect on on inequality. We're looking at evictions being allowed again. We're looking at people being able to pay their rent. It's, it's just very bad. And it, it's important, I think, to recognise two things. One is it has been very bad for a long time. We tend to be transfixed by the latest little change in things. But also the way we've dealt with the panic hasn't equalised. And we could have equalised things. If you look at other European countries, the level of their sick pay, uh, which they gave out, how they dealt with people's tenure and rent, they've come together and they've perhaps shown much greater solidarity uh, than we've done. So we didn't have to do it this way. This is the way we've chosen uh, to do it. And the pandemic has also created an, an amazing fog, not quite like the fog of war, But during wartime, every other agenda just goes out and you can do what you like. The pandemic has meant that we've concentrated on the pandemic and we haven't looked at other things going on, of which health-wise, one of the most crucial ones is that cuts and lack of services that resulted in huge numbers of elderly people dying early before the pandemic, they haven't gone away. And we've coming out of the pandemic, looking at statistics showing that health inequalities have risen between poor areas and rich areas. Now, the odd thing is that rich areas tend to be much older and in particular are very likely to contain people over the age of 90 who are most affected by the pandemic. So stepping back, you'd expect the pandemic to equalise things health-wise because it hurts the very old and the old, you don't tend to get into your 90s unless you're better off, but it hasn't. And our concern, and it's incredibly hard to work this out, 
The concern is that people's health from things other than pan the pandemic, cancers, liver disease, um, suicides and so on, has been quietly getting worse in the poorest areas faster than in the richer areas during the pandemic and we haven't noticed that because we're obsessed with this how many cases a day how many people die in 28 days of positive test so it's it's stopped the normal attention if you were to look at newspaper headlines each month before the pandemic hit it was all about inequality health inequalities how terrible it was they just they stopped of course because of the pandemic and as the pandemic wanes It'll be interesting to see how long it takes us to realise that we're actually in a situation slightly worse than we were when we went into it. But the thing is, Danny, like, yeah. just to reiterate what you're saying here, we said it on the show this time last year, we were talking about cancer diagnoses, scans, yeah. screening for other health issues. Like, everyone, there's been, the waiting lists have been massive and... There's not enough. There's not enough beds. There's not enough services, and it's like, yeah, yeah. Shit, and, and, and this people is bad. don't present. And the statistics are tricky. One of the most solid ones has been an increase in people dying at home, not of COVID, oh my which God. is which gives you an idea of um, what's been what's been going on. Um, so, the key thing isn't the pandemic. The key thing is that we were in a terrible state before the pandemic, which meant that when the pandemic hit, the effects on us were far greater, not just from people who caught the disease, but for people who didn't catch the disease, but who out of pandemic time would have been much better treated, might have even seen their GP. Yeah. You can't see a GP. I mean, I'm not blaming GPs. Yeah. They're trying to keep their practices working. Um, but it is, you know, there's no way of sugarcoating it. The most unequal country in Europe, year and a half after a pandemic hits, is in some ways a pretty depressing place statistically. And, and the problem is I see things with numbers. You know, you can walk around London, it's sunny. The people out, the people shopping, the people up and around, are the people doing better, they're the people doing okay. What the numbers and statistics show you is who's sitting at home, who's in small towns where nothing's happening and all the shops are closed down and so on. So you get a very different impression from your life. If your life is going well, then the people you're meeting around are doing okay. You won't see what's happening in those suburbs that are doing badly or those towns that are doing badly. Or even on your own street, you won't see those families who aren't coping because because of shame, they hide away. Mm. And I spend <laughs> fairly depressing research <laughs> days looking at numbers, trying to go, can these be true? Is it possible that we're getting something wrong and it isn't as bad as this? And sadly, I have to conclude they are true. Somebody would have found, you know, somebody on the right of politics would have found evidence that these aren't true. Shame, embarrassment and so on lead people in Britain in particular to blame themselves if things aren't working. And and that means that you can kind of get away with this without a sense of outrage um, because people aren't aware but this, uh, is this is structured yeah, in this uh, way. And even if they look at their own family and their brothers and sisters and cousins and so on and go, actually, they're not doing very well, they think, oh, that's my family. You know, so, so the advantage, the reason for being a social scientist to look at numbers um, is to cut through that. And it's really valuable. <laughs> so it's like, but in a country like Britain, which is so unequal, where people don't mix, it's much more useful than in a country where people mix much more, like Japan or Norway, where we know, well, they know each other. And... 
it's it's another kind of casualty of inequality is a lack of understanding about the lives of of other people but fucking hell danny that is cutting well, well what's interesting <laughs> whoa it's like it's, it's like um yeah. i suppose so many of the marginalized people like they would see that as this state as being normal because they hustle mm. hustling to survive so in this in this kind of depressed environment yeah side jobs come in um working in the black economy yeah this has always been a thing that i've people i know have always been aware of some people don't see it but people who the lived experience of people is that these that in these lean times yeah like even in normal times i you have several jobs yeah so you're always hustling yeah and, and this is a the statistical question we're looking at for is yeah, to what extent has the informal economy grown? Mm-hmm. And of course, the problem with informal economy is it's informal, so you can't measure it. But there, there are ways of guessing of guessing at it, looking at people's behaviour, looking at their spending, mm-hmm. you know, if they're getting money in. But just think of all those people who are cleaning, who were cleaning all those office blocks in London, mm-hmm. coming in overnight and cleaning them every night in the city of London, and bang, that stops. Now, that's a lot of people. And if you're going to stereotype, it's a lot of people say, my age, uh, in their 50s or 60s, pretty downtrodden. Um, you know, you say, what? Where are they? Where are they? What have they managed to do? Have they managed to get their children, grown-up children or children in their 20s to do something? People survive. They've, they have, well, apart from the mortality stats, but, you know, people have found ways to keep going in this. But as far as we can see, other than where you can get that extra work, you know, I know people who have um, you know, built shelters to go over pub tables when the pubs started doing, mm. you know, people are there. Other, other than the informal work that they can find, it has been mainly borrowing, uh, either borrowing privately or borrowing from grandpa, friends. granny, friends. Mm. Um, and we, ha- we have enough evidence of that happening. So when, when people say, oh, one group have managed to save a lot, well, some people have saved a lot, people who used to go out and spend a lot and, you know, eat out and things. But quite a lot of those people who might have saved a lot have actually looked after other members of their family because they, they had to. Yeah. Uh, and and that's happened too. And and you get used to it. Yeah. The problem is you get used to it. You And you completely forget situations decade ago when we've completely forgotten full employment. Mm-hmm. Um real full employment where you could really choose what kind of job you wanted to do and they were well paid we've forgotten when unemployment benefit was a quarter of earnings now it's about an eighth we get used <laughs> we go sorry we get we get used to the situation so it's, none of this is funny sorry guys we're just we're laughing because yeah. just danny just comes yeah. with all the receipts you know, it's like it's like someone's punching you yeah it's, it's like like, yeah. like we've got we constantly have this feeling of like stress and danny's code see like yeah yeah yeah. i'm gonna tell you why and i'm gonna give you all the numbers <laughs> i shouldn't do no 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 it's important well the problem is i, I, sp- I spend my days with them and, and of course the effect on you becomes less you know mm-hmm. the first time i i see what is it two percent of people are relying on food banks completely and so on and, and the first time i see them i'm shocked and you get used to them. the other really important thing that i want to get over is it isn't just about people at the bottom yeah right uh people in the middle of society are struggling more and the middle of society is you know you've got a job that pays twenty five thousand pounds a year um they're struggling more people at the top and this is the hardest argument to get over uh but People say in the middle of the top seventh of society. Um, so somebody 
with after they've paid for their housing and tax and so on, they've got about a thousand pounds a week and they've got a family and they've got kids. So 50 grand spare and there's two of them working. Um, they often think they're poor. Yes, thank yeah. you. Yeah. This is the people, honestly, yeah. these people do my head in. Mm. These mm. are the people that complain about not having anything or that they're skin. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sorry to drag some of my friends. I love you all so much that my 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 graduate as in my friends yeah. in university, but I have to remind them so many times. Yeah. Like you are not struggling. You're yeah. not struggling. You don't know what struggle is. They and, but they think they do. They really think they are struggling. They think they do, and and statistically, but if and you, they're saving. Sorry, carry on. And they're saving, but they but they have sorry. but they have to save. But if you were to take them, if you take somebody who is doing better than nine out of ten other people and not as good as one out of ten others, if you were to take them and put them into a more equal country, but in exactly the same position, uh, and they'd have less money then because it's a more equal country, they're calmer, they're happier, they're less worried, and they don't think they're, they're as poor as much. Because you could say to some, a family with a disposable, well, I say disposable, I mean, it's pays for your food. It's not that you know, you've got to eat. It pays for their food, their clothes, a holiday. It doesn't take long to work out how you can spend 50 grand a year. What that family will tend to do is to look at the other families with a little bit more than them, the ones who can buy, we don't need to buy a new car, but you know, they see other people buying a new car and they think, I'm poor, I can barely keep this car going. Or, and if you, again, if you play around this thing of person at the bottom of the top 10th, there's no way they can afford to send their kids to a private school. So how can they be well off? Because, you know, the well off send their kids to a private school. So. I can see, I I used to be like you. Right? I used mm -hmm. to be really, really annoyed. And of course, in academia, we're all full of people in the top 10%. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, that's a university lecturer at the bottom of the scale is in the top 10%. Mm -hmm. But of course, they don't feel well off because the senior lecturers are getting more than them and then the bloody professors are getting more. Mm -hmm. And then the senior management and the vice chancellors, vice chancellors are getting hundreds of thousands. Yeah. And they worry about things like their pension. And they don't realise you're lucky to be able to worry about a pension because you're going to have one. Mm -hmm. Um and it tears the fabric of society apart. It means you end up thinking about yourself. You don't think that you're taking more. You'll think you're being robbed. There was a lovely clip from Question Time, could be over a year ago, somebody I think who earned £80,000 a year, a man who earned £80,000 a year, and, and was was going to be was going to be taxed more um, if if the Labour, Labour had formed a government, saying how could he hope he wasn't rich, he was only earning 80,000 a year. But I can see how he could think that. Yeah, relative to his peer group, right? So, yeah, well, and to be able to get a mortgage. And, yeah. You know, that I, as soon as you think I want to be able to get a house, and then if you start thinking, I don't want to get a house just about anywhere, I'd like to be on the nicer half of town, only the nicer half, you're not asking for that much, um, then then you've got to be getting 80 grand because they'll lend you three times, that's 320 grand. You might have managed to save 50 grand, well, that's 370 grand. Well, you, know, you try and buy a house in, in London for 370 grand. Those people, like, obviously, I think everyone, you're, that means you're aware of how other people live and you don't mm. want to live like them. Yeah. You want to aspire to live well. But don't tell them that because they don't think that they think that, as in they think that they're just looking after themselves and their family. Like, they don't think they're being selfish or they don't think they're thinking about things in an individualised way. And if you say that to them, they get really defensive. But, I, but sometimes, so I think, so looking at, so when I was looking at the stuff, like, just after Brexit here and in America, how people play on that fear, 
our politicians have played on that yeah. fear of they're coming for they're coming for you. You could be like them, mm. and yeah. that fear, that kind of that kind of populist tool yeah. of saying to people like, listen, like your your mortgage, your your pension is in jeopardy. Yeah. So th- this this kind of like, for example, that twenty pound cut in universal credit, like, where's the energy I saw when people had what about statues? Mm. I haven't mm. seen that same energy for this, and it's because. I don't know. It's like, but this is what. But this. But see, my thing is, and mm. I agree with you. This is why I get so annoyed with this group that we're talking about, mm. and these are a lot of our peers. Mm. Is because these are the people that we need to get vexed. That we need them to get angry because the people that are affected by universal credit, mm. they're fucking. It's hard to fucking get up in the morning at the moment because you're so stretched. These people in the middle that think that think that they're hard done by or think that they don't have money. Mm. These are the people that we need to start think that we need them to start thinking collectively as a society, what is good for everyone? Like how can I help? Or what 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 should be we should be outraged about universal credit. But they're not because they think that they've worked they think that they believe in meritocracy as well. So they yeah. think that they've worked hard enough, they believe that they they've got what they earn. If they ha- if they don't make enough money it's because they need to work harder. Like yeah. they believe in this well, and, 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 Thatcherism, don't they? They believe in well, and they believe in what they're told so often. So yes, there's a constant yes. flood of information. You know, the, the minister, the, the minister for DWP, when the twenty pound a cup, twenty pound a week was being discussed, said, "Oh, mm. we've only got to work two hours more, two yeah, hours more, yeah. ten pound an hour." Yeah. Um, now, so there's a debate then about does she not understand how universal credit works or not? Nope. Um, and she probably doesn't. I mean, I, I think a lot of the nastiness at the top is actually ignorance of has never bothered to actually work out how the tapering works but if you say 20 pounds to somebody who's on an average income or a little bit above average and say you're cutting out i think it's only 20 pounds you know and they don't realize that people might be living off with kids 180 pound a week mm-hmm. um, and that 20 pound of course is the 20 pound that pays for the shoes mm-hmm. you know it, it's the 20 pound that that changes your life from being one of complete struggle to one of the occasional good things. You can, you can, mm-hmm. um, as your producers out of the room, I can say, because mm-hmm. don't, don't want to upset him too much. But, you know, it's a birthday present yeah. for a kid. Yeah, it's yeah, Christmas. Yeah. Um, and not a great Christmas. It's just actually having something at Christmas. And yeah. mm-hmm. you take that away and it's, and it's not there. But people, they also don't believe, you know, when I say this, and I partly didn't believe myself, um, they, they, they can't believe that other people can possibly be living on these amounts of money. Yeah. Because they could not. Um, I mean, I find it very hard to work out, you know, what I would do if I had my income reduced by 20%, by 40%, by 60%. Uh, I, you know, can begin to go through and mm-hmm. practically think about it. Um, but it's quite tricky. One of the things that um, you were talking about, Danny, in terms of inequality, made me think about... I think we've spoken to you about this before on the show, but I feel like we're living through, or I'm living through, we all living through, like, a very similar period to... Similar but different to, like, the 80s. And I remember remember growing up, like... I grew up in the late 90s, through the noughties, so my mum talking to me about what it was like, like coming of age in the eighties, like even like my grandparents talking about it. I mean, it was good for them because they're boomers, but like what, what that was like and how the social fabric of society was breaking down whilst 
cuts across the board, cut into the working classes, like affected people on on an economic level, on a cultural level, on a, so, a social level. And I feel like... I feel like it does. I I don't know what that feels like because I wasn't around in the eighties. Mm. But when I read about, when I read testimonies, when I read books, when I talk to Tiso, it it feels very reminiscent of that kind of breakdown of society that we're in at the moment. Yeah, it. I don't. It's it's what you've got the recollection of, and when you know my recollection of the eighties was I turned up in Newcastle upon Tyne and all the shipyards were shut, and there was no work in most households and it the 80s were a shock that there when we suddenly went from being pretty equal to becoming dramatically unequal year after year so it was kind of it was when the battle was actually um happening but it's different now mm-hmm. what we have now is the effects of decades of having lived like this so for me when i read books from 1910 or 1920s i was reading a book 1913 around about a pound a week uh, which was London suffragettes knocking on people's houses and trying to work out how they could live on a pound a week in 1913. And that kind of discovery of poverty that happened in Britain at that time, when people didn't you know, people didn't believe many people were poor. Charles Booth did the mapping in, in the 1880s, 1890s, but he was quite patrician and so on. It was all about how if you budget better, you can get yourself out of that criminal underclass that he he, he identified. Those suffragettes and other reformers in the 1920s, 1910s, they were doing research actually talking about how people managed to save money for, for the funerals of their children sometimes. And it was all the upper middle class educating themselves about, about the rest of society. And I think we were a little bit in that kind of a, an era um, now again, where you know, those at the top, you know can worry about not shopping in John Lewis because it's beneath them, you know, and, and it's the kind of similar kind of ridiculous inequality that there was in that Edwardian age. But do you find it, Danny, like it's, I think the problem with Western society, it's the, we have the ideal, right? So we have meritocracy, we have fairness and all this kind of stuff, mm. which are nice ideals, mm. but the lived reality for a lot of people isn't such thing. And, and this is the kind of, the kind of juxtaposition of those two things. So when you're, <clears throat> one of the marginalised, you're thinking, are you taking the piss? Mm. Like, can't you see what's in front of you? So this is the kind of dialogues, I think the dialogue that the West is having, is holding a mirror up to itself and saying, this is where you're really at. And some people don't believe in the reflection that they see back. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I don't want to see the reflection. And of course, people live on hope. I mean, the way you get through this is by thinking it will be better in 10 years' time. Yeah. Mm. That's why you buy lottery tickets. <laughs> you know, we did, I was thinking the other day, <laughs> We didn't. You, we introduced the national lottery. In my head, I got nineteen ninety four. I think we did it. Mm. We didn't need to sell people lottery tickets before then. And the great irony is, we didn't have food banks in the nineteen nineties either. Mm. If you look at how food banks are funded, it's money from the national lottery, right? Paying it. But people have have hope. You you don't look at your situation. You cannot get through looking at your situation and saying, it's not only going to be like this or worse for me for the rest of my life, but it's if it carries on going this way, it's going to be worse for my kids. You can't do that. And so you live on the kind of hope, the American dream. Uh, what was it that tennis player said the other day? Oh, if you all work as hard as me, you can be number one at tennis too. Who said that? The Emma? The Emma. Yeah, Emma. Emma. Yeah, 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 yeah. And bless her, she's only 17 or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But that kind of, 
you know, you can make it if you try. It's like that kind of that bootstrap mentality. And mm. a lot of my uh, working class friends who have made it have that mentality. Yeah. And, and they turn against their fellow working class uh, comrades who are on benefit. Yeah. And the argument is, well, if I could do it, why can't they? Yeah, I, I'll never forget. You You sort of remember little things in your life. I, mm -hmm. I, I went to talk to a lay party in Gloucester mm -hmm. um, before the pandemic. And there was another part, there was another group in the same building. And they were outside having having a drink. And I went outside. And a lad outside having a drink goes, what are you doing in there? And he, I said, it's Labour Party and they're doing this. And he goes, we don't need them. I'm getting 50 grand a year because I, I'm willing to get on my bike, go out. I'm doing shop fitting. And, you know, it's all great. And I got the feeling he was partly talking himself up. He might have a mate who might in one year have actually got 50 grand. I don't, I was sort of thinking if you did have 50 grand, you probably wouldn't be here anymore. Mm. Um, but also it was this kind of lottery thinking. If everything works out, if everything comes through, I can travel around the country sleeping in my van, doing up shops for shop fitting and I can get 50 grand a week. Now, of course, that was just before the pandemic. Mm. So that lad's dream, you know, there's no way nobody's going to be re have refitted any shops for the last two years. Mm -hmm. Right. But the dream is what he had. And there'll be other people with similar dreams right now. If I do it this way, if I do this, I've got a way of getting through. If I can just manage to buy that house and do it up, it'll be my pension and I'll be OK in old age. All kinds of schemes. And because the schemes will work for a small number of people and you can see who they've worked for, because you can see them with the big house and the working class background mm -hmm. and, and the story of how they, you know, bought a nightclub and did it up or whatever, <laughs> right? And you see you see these examples of victory. You see the tennis player who wins mm -hmm. and gets this enormous prize money. You don't see the majority of people. We, we don't, uh, unless they're paraded on some TV show which yeah. actually takes the mickey out of the poor. Yeah, yeah. Given we have, we are, we are above peak inequality in the UK. Fucking so, <laughs> what <laughs> what can be the policy response be? Because given that in reality we're shrinking the welfare state, yeah. we're in. I, I, I assume looking like we're moving towards a more Americanized model. We're also noticing a more Americanized approach. Uh, sorry, Americanized attitude towards welfare in the UK. Mm. So, in saying people don't don't claim benefit. Yeah. And if you do claim benefit, you're a bad person. Yeah. And with on top of that, the growth of automation. So I was walking in the new section of Canary Wolf. So most of the shops there are not manned by people. There's one person there. Yeah. So it, the shop employs one person. And so what happens to all these people that would normally get employed? Yeah. So given that all this, what can the policy response from government, given that the prevailing zeitgeist is smaller welfare state or no welfare mm. state? And if you are poor, private, the private sector or the private sector will have to cut, you will have to come in. So you are charity, Charity being the full sector, but mm. um, some form of like workhouses or whatever. I, I don't know. So, of, of where we're heading on. Yeah. Well, forced employment. You know that that that's been the main thing. Forced employment. So what's that, Danny? Where you're sanctioned if you don't apply for enough jobs. Where your benefits are cut. So you have what's it called? Workfare. Mm -hmm. But you know, forced employment. So at the extremes, and, and this has been going on for a couple of decades. Um, you know, I know people who are claiming benefits in Cornwall who um, DSS vans turned up two decades ago to take them to pick daffodils um, mm. because they said they're looking for a job. So we'll, we'll see more forced employment, um, busting people off to do fruit picking rather than bringing in people from abroad to do fruit, fruit picking, those kind of things. And there's a point 
that can work for for a bit. We the other thing is having a welfare state which underpins low paid employment. Okay. So although you say we're getting rid of the welfare state, we're actually spending more on it than ever before, but we're spending more on the parts which help an employer pay somebody a very low wage and still get them, or pay money directly to a landlord so that somebody can stay in a the state. So so the although the government says it wants to shrink the state, it's not shrinking the parts of the state which give money in effect to the employers by meaning they don't have to pay a high wage or give money directly to landlords. Those bits it's keeping. And of course the other big bit it keeps is the the bit that makes the landscape, the visible landscape, not look too awful. So children are sacrosanct. We will always do something for children. We will house them. We won't have children begging. And similarly, we won't feed them though. We won't feed them, but we'll, and we'll take them off their families yes. and give them to another family. Yeah. But we won't allow them to be in the gutter. Mm. And the same for pensioners. You know, we'll find somewhere to stick the pensioners so that they're not sitting on the sidewalks either. But the current thinking of government is if you're in between, once, you, once you're 18, 19, and if you haven't made it to whatever it is now, 68 for retirement, I don't know, um, in between you're kind of fair game. Um, and that isn't, that isn't good. The policy response is not just, you, you need a change in attitude. And that's, that's what we're going to have to have. And it's, it's the attitudes that we have at the moment that allow this to continue. But given the kind of hubristic nature of empire, mm-hmm. so people are, have this kind of attitude that, if they could only go back this mythical time when it when everything seemed okay, yeah. that all these problems will be are gone or these paternalistic these paternalistic attitudes have come back from that age almost. Yeah. So when people like Boris Johnson do make moves on universal credit, no one says stuff because it's your social betters saying stuff. Yeah. But there's more outrage for someone who's come to steal from the motherland. Yeah. And so how do you change that attitude given the kind of hubristic nature of empire as it's in its waning days? Yeah, it's it it is not easy. Especially in a lockdown. It's not easy in a lockdown, but you know, but other things did happen in lockdown. People had time. So you did get the marching on statues happened yeah, partly in lockdown. Good, yeah. Um you've got to recognise how much of it is in built. I was just thinking of if you ever saw Oliver Twist, the movie. Like the flower selling girls dancing in the street about how happy they were to be selling flowers, you know. So, so we painted this picture of the past, a very unequal past, as if it was wonderful. And then this little orphan boy in the workhouse, well, don't worry because his rich family will pick him out. Uh, then, so we actually sanitised. And of course, this was written as a story to shock people originally. We've sanitised the unequal past, and we kind of sell it as uh, good to people. We and we talk on the television and the news all the time to the public as if they were in the top half of society. Yes. Or the top quarters. You talk about people and their overseas holiday. Right? Half of all kids have no holiday at all. But we talk about people and their overseas holiday. And it's done very well because radio presenters, T V presenters tend to be as well off as me. You know, I'm a university professor, I'm well off. That some of them earn a lot more than me. But they've learned a way of talking as if that's not actually their life, as if their children go to a normal school, but still talking aspirationally about things. Um, you know, doing up houses, all those programs about doing up houses on the telly. You know, all you've got to do is do up houses. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got to break a lot of this. Our best model uh, of how to do this is our past. You know, we did this in the 1930s, a little bit in the 1920s, a lot more in the 1920s. 
forties uh, and fifties, we changed the rhetoric. We we changed how we thought about working class people in Britain. We stopped thinking of working class people as well genetically inferior. Eugenics was all the rage. Everybody was a eugenicist in the early nineteen thirties, and that was a quite a, a fast switch that happened then. You know, twenty or thirty years mm-hmm. ch- a change in thinking. So. Do you think that that kind of shift was due to kind of like in in the UK context, the working class people showing their strength, like in the the, the general strike of nineteen twenty six, and so an en masse show of strength and unity that kind of paralyzes the country and makes people take note. Yeah. Whereas in today's context, I have kind of developed what I said to Chantel the other day. It's like poisonous solidarities, solidarities that are kind of quite toxic and quite nasty between like groups of people that are not really naturally aligned but have found common cause yeah. for a kind of like um, like some like just I think that's a really that is a, I really love that example you give T so and it kind of reminds me of like Danny was talking about um like TV commentators like the poisonous solidarities between like a guest that they'll have on like this morning mm-hmm. and like a guest that they'll have on GB news yeah. like how has that managed to merge like yeah. that kind of those kind of rhetorics that come out of the TV now that just demonise poor people. Yeah. And, I mean, so when I occasionally, well, one advantage of for, for having working at home is I now will occasionally put on the telly and see, see the good morning shows <laughs> at 10 o'clock in yeah, the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you look at, you know, they're all thin, smiley, fairly fit, mm-hmm. happy, successful, playing around in that top 10% of society. There's a nice doctor on there. Um, you know, <laughs> and some Tell you not to eat sugar. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's not a conscious conspiracy. This is just seen as good telly uh, that that works and gets people watching because it's aspirational. Because, you know, who's going to watch something that's more realistic than that? And, you know, there are weirdies who you can turn over to alternative news channels now, but they are all about... Russia today would be the classic. Mm-hmm. What's terribly wrong about the country you're living in, sponsored by Putin? Now, mm-hmm. but the, the what's terribly wrong is largely right. Yeah, but they just—they're not very good on Russia, Russia mm-hmm. today. But they are quite good on the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I think the listeners will be really intrigued to get your thoughts on, Danny. Um, thank you for everything you've said so far on inequality, even though it's pretty depressing. Brexit. Yes. There's no staff. There's no food. Like, as in. Like going into the supermarket, it, we were saying to, to these guys yesterday, I was like, <laughs> it's like an elephant in the room. I've been able to get parsnips for weeks. Yeah. Like, I'm not joking. I mean, I've got parsnips. Yeah, I love parsnips. <laughs> um, roast them. Yeah, roast them. And, um, <laughs> Don't taste so bad. And in like, so in all the restaurants, everyone's hiring, yeah. everyone's gone. Yeah. So what, what, what are they going to do? Like, as in, how are the government going to carry on this circus of, like, Brexit is good? Like, Brexit's going to be really good for Britain because surely, like, Christmas is coming. What's going to happen? <laughs> well, you don't, well, I mean, for the hiring, if you're an older teenager at the moment, it's great. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There are jobs for 16, 17-year-olds. Um, suddenly, it's... Um, you can get away with it. You you can just sort of say there were lots of lorry drivers. They're not here anymore. Don't worry. We'll train people to be lorry drivers, but it'll take a bit of time, and they'll get away with. Do you yeah. think? Well, and and even and we'll let people legally drive a lorry for an unsafe period of time. <laughs> oh, and we take out reversing uh, from the from the test. <laughs> um, you know, so and and you can you can do this. The wow. when. 
when people may really notice, and it's kind of like the opposite of the 1940s or 50s, for the few people who could get over to mainland Europe in the 40s or 50s when he did in the 60s, we were much, much better off. One reason we we managed to introduce a Moigal society so relatively easily and successfully is that Britain was incredibly rich still by the 40s and 50s, still had an empire, still had the residue of that. We had really rich families that we could tax and take their big houses off them, and we did. We don't have that uh, anymore, so becoming more equal now is going to be fairly hair shirt for uh, a lot of people. That's the issue, because the, the attitude is, and I'm kind of born at the start of that, it's the kind of consumerist lifestyle. I, we just want to consume and have stuff, and I don't want to stop not yeah. having stuff. Yeah. And but the, what, if, what if you can't consume food? Like, as in, what if there's food right, shortages? And, and the thing, and this is what I think about food shortages. If you've got money, you could always get food, right? You could always get... Yeah. But those that haven't, you're not really... what You don't mm. see them, right? Like you were saying earlier, so... Well, you'll get worse food. Yeah. And, you, and you'll quickly get used to worse food, so you don't know that you're getting worse food and you'll tell people that your kids have fresh fruit and veg every day well they don't but only you will know that and you'll feel like and of course it will be mum you'll feel like a bad mum where when the veg doesn't turn up in a town it'll turn up in some supermarkets but not in others and if that's how brexit will play out over the very cheap european food that we used to used to get we see, this is how I see. So I prepared myself. This way, a diet of McDonald's. You sort of not ready. <laughs> I prepared myself for the apocalypse. So when you say in terms of how Brexit's going to, so do you think? Do you mean like richer towns are going to get better food? The cost of basic goods like food is going to rise, mm-hmm. and already is. So we're getting inflation rising. Oh what then happens is that your supermarkets in the poorer parts of town stock a narrower range of things that people can actually afford to buy. Because if they carried on stocking what they stocked before at higher prices, there'll be stuff that doesn't sell. Wasted, yeah. Yeah, so it's not just a question of what can come in. And, and they, you know, the Lloyd Driver thing will be sorted out and some of the other things will be sorted out, but the prices will go up and people become used to it. Um, but people have been saying, and, and this is a, an old breaking argument that Brexit Tears used to use, they, 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 thought they knew it was going to be painful. Yeah. And to kind of paraphrase Jacob Rees-Mogg, give it 50 years and <laughs> yeah. like you'll go through this pain. But I guess, again, it's what we're speaking about, the, the inequality. If you're if you're in a certain socioeconomic bracket, mm. you, you, you might feel the pain a little bit or not at all. Yeah. And and that's, I guess, that's the whole point of this kind of individualistic, individualistic kind of society we have. If, if I'm, okay, if I'm don't, not feeling it, yeah. it's okay. Or Jacob Rees-Mogg, I think, thinks it's about it's a greater good argument, the yeah. great future. He's really interesting over his constituency, which is a pretty poor rural constituency um, where people are not doing well. And if you're trying to sort of think through his eyes, yeah, there are various solutions to this. Mine is a more equal, more European, normal country. His is an enormous explosion of new empire kind of thinking um, and a very successful global financial power and with London competing with Luxembourg and offshore treasure islands for cash from the world's billionaires and that money eventually trickling down to his constituents in wherever it is in North Somerset or wherever it is he's MP for and, and that's his kind of dream his plan his way out he sees my one as oh that just lim- that just pushes you down and down and down, and before you know it, you're like Italy. You know that will be, you know, which is I don't think there's anything particularly wrong yeah, with yeah. Italy, but which, and Italy's a more equal, but Italy's more equal, France is more equal, Germany's more equal, Spain is more equal. They're all more equal than we are. But when I when I reflect on how where they are and that kind of uh, Jacob Jacob Rees-Mogg's kind of vision 
Mm. It, it that's almost like a feudal version, like a, a nation state version of Europe again and yeah. of Britain, yeah. like a very kind of wealthy elite that's so detached from reality yeah. and making policies for people that they don't ha they don't have no kind of connection to. Yeah, well, it, it is. It was called the Singapore on Thames model, okay. and what people didn't do when Singapore was they didn't look about what's around Singapore. What's it like in Malaysia and Indonesia and you know all that? Um, because of course, the Singapore and Thames one works for a bit of London and a few other people outside of London mm -hmm. can live like the better off quarter in Singapore live. Mm -hmm. But you'll have the inequality of Singapore. You'll have servants living in your houses, and all around you, you will have poorer and poorer people, including in Britain itself, because it's too big for it all to become. Mm -hmm. You can't level it up to Singapore and Thames. When you look around the world and you see the, the kind of what happens with, with in extreme inequality is that people build up, they start building walls, gated communities to keep the keep the uh, tainted out. Yeah. So is this is this a possible future? Even like where I where I live in the city, um, you see this start happening. Most of the things that you ca you can't go into because rich people live there. Or if you go down to, like, goes towards Canary Wharf, it's all private property with their own police force. Yeah. And this is, but it masquerades itself as public property. Yeah, that's been happening. But also just security guards. Mm -hmm. We had so few security guards 20 or 30 years ago. It's a kind of boom industry of, of fear. And there's other more subtle ways it happens. So even things like Greenbelt policy. You know, that helps you to separate certain areas from the kind of prosperous village or you can't touch that village or build some social housing there. Um, they won't let you do that. The social housing must be in the larger city nearby so that we don't have to see the lives of the people who actually come and pick our bins up who live in the social housing. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it happens in London, yes, gated communities, but elsewhere you can do it simply by zoning where the housing is and by protecting nature, as protecting, and I don't want to protect nature, but so much of British protecting nature. National parks, you know, they're beautiful and so on, but what a national park really does is impose really strict planning controls. So your twee villages in the North York Moors or wherever, or in Snowdonia are kept twee, and then just outside the national park is the poor area where the people who come and might do the gardening for some people in the national park can live. Mm. And so we, we can do gated communities in ways where the gates are not seen. Mm -hmm. um, and, that, and that springs up and that increases. And it happens, and it then results in our schools having these great differences between schools and people trying to get into a good school area and not believing you when you say that in other countries they have situations where people don't worry about local school because they know what it will be like and it will be good. Mm. You know, we just think, oh, how can that happen? Wow, it's a Friday as well. On a Friday, Friday. on a Friday, Danny's come and bring in all the receipts. Right, okay. For the last little bit of the episode, Danny, yeah. please, can we talk? No, not hope. We're talking about the toy party. Oh. <laughs> Danny, Danny brings it the toy party. Yeah, can we talk about the toy party? They're yeah. going to be in power for like another ten years, aren't they? Not, not necessarily. Now I'll give you hope. Now on, okay, on go, all on, this. go on, go on, go on. Not, not necessarily. You know. They have been in power with their friends, the Liberals, since For 2010. so long. Well, 11 years, only 11. Oh, You're my, too young. It's my, adult, it's my, it's my <laughs> adulthood. Yeah, in power for 11. Previously, what, Maggie came in in 1979. She was out in 1990, that's 11 years. And then there was another seven. So that's 18. 
Right. 18's, 18's the previous record. Um, this lot had done 11. O- odds on would win one more election. But if they were to win two more, that would be unprecedented. And also doing it when they are not actually benefiting a group of society materially. Whereas the Conservatives in the 80s did. Mm-hmm. A group got much better off. They, they got richer. People did get to own their council house. And they got to buy it at a discount and they feel like the government was handing them £40,000. I can't see currently how the Conservative Party have a medium or long-term plan to win other than basing it on illusion, making people hope for a better future and you vote for them and they'll get a better future, or basing it on an illusion of there are all these evil stoats and weasels, that's what I use, you can wind and willows, mm-hmm. right? The stoats and the weasels and windows and willows were the, were the terrible ones that you had to worry about. And so they have culture wars, they do all the other things. They try and create divisions between the white working class and mm-hmm. black working class in the cities because they can't actually, and there isn't a way for them to do this, they can't actually do what the Thatcherites did, which is materially make a further society better off, let you buy the second car for the wife, which is what mm-hmm. kind of happened, um, let you... Uh, See a, a retirement, which you, you're going to be able to go on holiday on that kind of thing, and so I think it's harder for for the Conservatives uh, now uh, than it was then. It does depend about what opposition is put against them, but yeah, it's and they also they don't strike me the ministers we have at the moment. It's not the kind of same determination or ability of Michael Heseltine's or. Ken Baker for educational, Kenneth Clark, all those 1980s ones. They knew what they wanted. They knew how to got it, and mm-hmm. and they and they got it. Um, you name me one government minister that is capable that is actually capable and has a plan of something they want to do that looks as if they're going to. I agree. I think how they would win and win the next election mm-hmm. is based on illusions and promises, right? Mm-hmm. I think obviously Boris Johnson. I, don't, I think I don't think he will be the leader. I think. I mean, Chantal, this mm. thing called the Rishi thesis. I think Rishi Sunak mm. would be the next prime minister. And I think that sells with their kind of, kind of image and promises of this new Britain. Yeah. And so that was, that's the thesis, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, he's, he's been like, he was sort of being lined up. Although, you know, one reason for reshuffles and, and as dramatic a reshuffles we just had, it was a pretty dramatic one, mm. is to stop alliances forming at the top of the Conservative Party behind a new leader. So you keep moving them around. Yeah, Boris does appear to want to stay for the moment. Yes, I thought power. he wanted to, see, I thought he wanted power, to flee man. because he hasn't got enough cash, has he? That's what he keeps talking about. He hasn't got enough, he hasn't got enough cash. He probably make more money when <laughs> he's not prime minister. So that's the power. And I thought they wanted to get rid of him. So I thought your guy Rishi would become, because I thought it'd be Michael Gove. <laughs> but, but I think Tiso is right. It's more likely to be Rishi. It's quite funny. You know, housing minister is a demotion. And also putting, which is what's happened to Gove. And... Uh, being put in charge of levelling up, which is a kind of impossibility, is also mm-hmm. a kind of poison chalice. So I think Boris has really stuck it into Gove mm-hmm. because Gove is a credible threat. Dominic Cummings is behind Gove. There's a mm-hmm. group in the Tory party who would really like. And of course, Gove is your real Tory aspiration dream. You know, an adopted boy who went into a family whose father fished up in Scotland, you know, came from nowhere. Whereas Sunak... Um, there's a lot of money there. It's a money man, right? It's a lot of money. Um, and that's just his own family, let alone the one he married into. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to sell 
Sunak has the dream to people is much harder. Although, you know, Gove, bless him, he does go to nightclubs and things, but, you know, one of the people... <laughs> not, we're not isn't. blessing Gove on this podcast. Sorry, Danny, <laughs> you have to retract Sorry. that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we do not bless Michael I, Gove. <laughs> if, you want, if you want to worry about the Conservative, I'd worry about the new set of young ones who've come in, um, particularly <sighs> ones who... who um, were not expected to win because they were allowed to stand in seats that the Tories should never have won. And some of them are very ambitious. Some of them are like, when we saw them coming through on, in 2019, I was like, who the hell is this? And then you look at their background, they're like, oh my God, raging racist, raging yeah. nationalist. Like, and they're, and they're in their mid-30s. Like, yeah. scary times. So they're the people who you'd normally allow to stand in a seat when the Conservatives would come third, mm-hmm. but they're so driven and enthusiastic they'd stand and bother and lose. But when it came to the serious seats, they go to people like Kenneth Clark and so on, the old kind of grandee, a bit safer, mm-hmm. not rabid uh, ones. But because the landslide was so big, a whole set of people um, have got in who do have pretty rabid views. And mm-hmm. some of them, it's like the opposite to Blair's landslide. The Blair's landslide, if you remember that the sexist headline was Blair's Babe, a mm-hmm. hundred women got in. And these were often women who were loyally standing because somebody had to stand. They didn't necessarily want to be an MP, but they were Labour Party good. And they suddenly became MPs and then they, most of them dropped out. They, mm-hmm. they weren't that ambitious for power. It's different because, and being hopeful, some of these people in their 30s who are really driven, who want to take over from Sunak and Boris and really want to abolish all planning laws, privatise the NHS straight away, do things faster, there will be a very strong but hidden war within the Conservative Party as they try to get up. The Conservative Party knows to do all its fighting in private. In public, it is absolutely loyal. You do not tell the little people that you don't agree with each other because their brains aren't up to it, so you don't. The opposite to Labour, you know, which is just slag each other off on Twitter endlessly. Right? If you believe in inequality and you believe you're superior, the last thing you do is have an argument in public. Uh, and and that it's a very successful war for Conservatives. So you, you will not see. Or when they do have arguments, they're staged. You know, the argument about national insurance rise. You know, it was almost as if it was researched. It was, you know... Because if you can have an argument, public argument within the Conservative Party, that stops others from joining in. But there was no heart in it when you when you see these. What about the Labour Party? I've left the Labour Party. Mm. We're we're the Green Party. We're in the Green Party now, guys. Mm. Big up the Greens. Yeah, we are. We're in the Green Party. Yeah, Labour Party. Um, it will change again. It always changed. It has been a pretty since oh. the '60s a pretty unsuccessful. Social Democratic Party, the, well, maybe the most unsuccessful Social Democratic Party in Europe uh, since the 60s. So, well, just, by, just by measuring. You're shit. But, 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 okay, let me have a, let me say my worry about the Green Party. Oh, go on, Greens, Greens, my I, people. I cycled from my house, being very green, cycled from my house to the train station this morning, and I cycled past New College, one of the richest colleges in Oxford, and in the window of one of these stone, beautiful things, was a little Green Party poster at New College. And I just thought, um, you know, and I grew up in Oxford where mm-hmm. there's a politics of you're either in university and it's not nice or you're local and you're being shafted. And I looked at the Green Party poster in the window of New College and I thought, 
it kind of looks a bit like the party of the doing pretty well, well off. We want to save the planet, but we don't care about the fact that somebody's sleeping in a sleeping bag on the pavement beneath the Green Party poster in the college window. Mm. And this is my worry about the British Green Party. Not Green Parties in other European countries where they have PR um, or even the Green Party in Scotland. Proportional representation, guys. It's, you know, uh, much more productive. In Britain, we do have a problem of a tradition of conservatism, small c, where the kind of Zach Goldsmiths, and I think it was Zach's uncle who published the Ecologist magazine at the heart of the Green Party, kind of patrician, old money conservatives, happy about saving the planet, but still want to keep the serfs on the estate. Yes. And, and that's, that's my worry with the British Green Party. And it's because of the first past the post system that it's quite hard to change that. And then you end up with fights in wards between a Green Party councillor and a Labour councillor. A brilliant kind of distraction um, from what the fight should really be. Um, I don't want to completely damn the Green Party, but I think there's a reason why we have a less socially progressive Green Party than other European countries uh, do. Who, I mean, they can talk about things like wanting a living wage or basic income, but they won't actually allow council houses to be built in the city that I live in because that would be bad for the fields. And, you know, it's 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 a problem in Britain, which which means, you know, I'd like to progress. British alliance. people care more about and I like animals, but they care more about animals yeah, and no, fields you, than you, black people. <laughs> it's true. Listen, listen you, saw Bruce, you saw Bruce yesterday. Yeah. Walking around with tea and his dog. I'm like, God, the level of love that like the. The general public give to animals in comparison to homeless people yeah. is incredible. So Incredibly is, bad, obviously, yeah. but it's, it's astounding. Yeah. But the system, first past the post in this case, creates this mm. this this dynamic at, at the top. How do you how do we convince people to change it? Or the, as the, it'll be the politicians who could change it. They don't need to hold a referendum. They just need to agree. But the problem is, how do you get enough politicians elected mm-hmm. uh, to actually to actually be able to change it? it's looking at all those other countries it's not as if there are any other countries in Europe running first past the post you know it's not as if there's a progressive country anywhere in the world running first past the post um, so it's it's an education job principally for the Labour Party because the Greens are for it mm. you know the Liberals are for it you've only got to convince the Labour Party that they're not going to become again that party that they were in the 1960s and winning in 1964 and 1966 um, off the back of large numbers of people who worked in factories and also with MPs from the same background. I saw the other day, at least 1945 government, three quarters of MPs had gone to a state school. It's the last time that had ever happened. And again, that was a landslide. So people who weren't supposed to win seats became MPs and three quarters of them were state school educated. A lot of them had grown up in poverty, mm. and that 1945 government then absolutely transformed the country. Um, so it, it's Labour is the primary target. Labour needs to understand why PR needs to come in, and it's in, it's in its own interest as a party and in the interest of the people it's trying to help, which is the vast majority of the population. But they're shit. We just, we just established they're shit. So, <laughs> yeah, so. so there's no fucking hope they're shit, right? <laughs> They're, they're unsuccessful. <laughs> the most unsuccessful. Well, probably one of the most successful, like you said, unsuccessful in oh, Europe. In, I, th- I think uh, in Europe, but well, somebody has to be. <laughs> <laughs> You're, you have to be shit. You, well, 
Well, so, somebody has to be. The record hasn't been great. Of course, what you know, anybody who supports Labour, lower my age, will be livid hearing this. You know, they'll say, but what about reducing child poverty? What about putting double glazing in? You know, they just come out with this list of things, mm. bringing in the minimum wage in 1997, rather than actually stepping back and going, how come we became the most unequal country in Europe, including under many, many years of a, of a Labour government as well? Mm. So you've got to step back and say, and then. When there was a little upset in the Labour Party, when the person got elected who wasn't supposed to get elected, even then, I remember a year, year and a half uh, of those Labour MPs who worked with Jeremy Corbyn, they were still in shock that they'd actually <laughs> got in. Yeah, they weren't yeah, getting yeah. over the fact that almost by a mistake, Corbyn had been elected leader. And and they did very well in 1997. You know, the, the mm. biggest swing, mentioned in a particular way, since 1945 in 2017. So the potential, huge rise, that's why, why uh, May lost her majority um so the, the scope is there and if you want to dream thing for hope you want a change something occurs so that at the same time as you've got those rather rabid 30 year olds in the red wall seats going forward you also hope there's some other quieter not so noisy 30 40 year olds planning not if you like the relics of 1960 which is what corbyn was lovely man but it's from that era but people coming up where most of their friends and their family are renting, haven't got a pension, can't actually see great hope. And, and that's that's what you need to happen within that Labour Party. And it happened before, and the Labour Party was in utter disarray in the 1930s. Um, you know, worse than it is actually now, and doing even worse in elections. Mm. And then you, get, you get, can get the change. So don't think the future is necessarily going to be bad. It's it looks really bad, but of course it would look really bad in a, in a country where the situation is as bad as this. But the impetus for do something different is higher. In a country which is fairly well worked out, say Germany, you know, voting for a conservative, mild conservative government in PR, Merkel, most successful European leader, I've forgotten how many years she's been in power, it's enormous. You can do that because the inequalities are lower, you vote conservative, you live with it. Trying to get people to carry on voting Conservative in Britain on the hope that they're all going to win the lottery, that's going to be a much harder task for the next few years. There we go. There's your hope, listeners. Any that's Danny Dorlin. Mic sick, drop. Sick. Mic drop every time. <laughs> That's a bit of hope. George is looking like there maybe isn't hope because George always wants dates of when this is going to happen. Yeah. In yeah, the yeah. next 10 years, babe. In the next 10 years. <laughs> the next 10 years. Sometimes I think, how do you cope with seeing the world so without the, no without the enchantment like you just disenchant the world you're like that it, this is just how it is the numbers the, the cold hard facts oh i find it hard and I, i'm going to talk to a school on monday to children from five schools where they've asked me to talk about inequality mm. and, and i think <laughs> i think the teachers just don't know what they, i mean i'll try and Bring some, pictures. Bring, some oh, pictures. Well, Bring some pictures i'm just going to show them some graphs because it's not 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 pictures but um so it's difficult <laughs> Why, why, why do I, why do I stay? Well, most of the rich world is not like this, and you can also look at, and a lot of the poor world is getting much, much better. Mm -hmm. So, so that's you know, you get, take yourself away from this country, and there is an enormous number of good news stories. Um, but also, this has not been arranged well. If you were going to arrange this well to kind of have a hundred years of this, you would have divided society in such a way that a set of young people were doing okay and 10% of young people were doing actually pretty well okay. And 
that's how you would sustain this. You wouldn't have it in where only 1% are doing okay. And if you're young, even with quite a fortunate background, the chances of things working out are not that good. So this hasn't been well-planned. It's not a well-planned divided society. It's a kind of accidental that New Labour didn't want uh, to, to end leaving power with the country being as unequals when they came in. You know, that wasn't actually a plan. They just didn't know it was much of a problem. And even Boris, you know, for all his actual beliefs, he'd, he'd absolutely love, he'd absolutely love to walk out of being prime minister with some statistical evidence saying that there had been a leveling up. You know, it would be, that would be his, his mandolin history. He would like it. Margaret Thatcher, I'll end on this for you. Right? Margaret Thatcher signed up to Target One of the World Health Organization, which Target One, uh, was to halve social inequalities in health and geographical inequalities in health by the year 2000. Now, they actually doubled. But Margaret Thatcher signed up to the target when she was Prime Minister because she believed her policies would actually trickle down and halve inequalities. So, in terms of that, in terms of people dying, you know, so, so don't... Yeah, don't be don't be too. Have faith about in things. the evil people. <laughs> no, no, don't have faith. Don't have faith in the evil people. But don't. No. Go on, Danny. What is the message here? No, no. So I've heard the, the, no, the message is. Go on. That Johnson hasn't sat down with Cummings and so on and devised a plan to have a hundred years of an unequal country, right? They actually do think that it'll be a richer, better off place. They're if they're dumb. Followed. They're dumb. They, they could have been better educated. Yes. Oh dear, <laughs> listeners, Danny Dolan. Danny, thank you, thank you. Danny, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us, listeners. We'll be back again next week. Bye. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to the T's and C's with T. and Chantel. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram.